Hello, and welcome to Where Am I To Go podcast. Today, before we start the show, I would like to bring up some business things that have kind of been on my mind so that you can know where to get more Where Am I To Go. First off, I'd like to talk about the Facebook page at Where Am I To Go podcast. It's on Facebook, and we've been posting some wonderful pictures of some of the places that we've been and some of the adventures that we've had. Not everything that we go and do is made into a podcast, and so we take pictures at different places and post those pictures so that you guys can enjoy some of the different places we've been. Also, I really am interested in listener feedback. I have an email address at whereamitogopodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is whereamitogopodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear some of the listeners' comments and some of their ideas of places that might be interesting to visit and go and do. This is a podcast that I have really been wanting to do for a long time. I am excited, like in extremely excited, to be where I am today, to be talking about the topic that uh, we're going to talk about. The person whose museum we're at is one of my all-time heroes. I think she did everything right, and I just want to give notice to that. And we are here today with Donna at the Rosa Parks Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. And we are going to talk about the life of Rosa Parks. We're going to talk about uh, the, the court case that she took to the Supreme Court. We're going to talk about civil disobedience and just all kinds of things. There was so much happened here in Montgomery, and I'm excited to be able to talk about this because I think that so many things that happened back in the 60s are relevant to what's going on in our country right now. Hopefully, I don't give too many of my biases and prejudices, and I can keep this thing fairly neutral, but some of those may come out more in this podcast than what you have heard in others. So let's go ahead, Donna, and start talking about the topic here, Rosa Parks. Sure, thank you. It is an honor to be included in this. But our museum is in Montgomery, Alabama, like you said, and we are located on the spot where Mrs. Parks was arrested on the evening of December 1st, 1955. She had boarded the bus a couple of blocks up after getting off work, and as the bus moved a couple of blocks forward and stopped at a couple of the bus stops, more white passengers got on, and when the bus driver demanded that she get up and move, she said that, no, she wasn't physically tired, that she was tired of being treated as less than human and tired of giving in, and so that was why she refused to give up her seat. And you mentioned earlier, we were talking about her life, really, of activism. And most people don't realize how involved in civil rights, social justice work she was. She really got her start in 1931 with the Scottsboro Boys case. She was helping to raise money for their defense. Um, if you or your listeners do not know who they were. They were nine young African-American men who were falsely accused of raping two white women or white women on a train. And so everybody pretty much knew they were innocent. And so all these people in the black community were coming together to try to raise money to help in their defense. 
and that was actually when she met her husband, or the man that would become her husband, Raymond Parks. And she said that Raymond was really the first activist she had ever met, and he was the one that got her more involved in civil rights work. He was a member of the NAACP, and so she was used to having these NAACP meetings at her house, and the guys would all be sitting around with guns because they never knew who was going to come in or what could happen. And so she said that was kind of always in her mind. And then in 1943, she joined the NAACP herself and was immediately made secretary. And one of her main roles in the NAACP was to travel around the state of Alabama collecting information and stories of these women who had been sexually assaulted, most of the time by white men who went largely unpunished. And so she and other members of the local NAACP would travel around and collect that information, write those stories down to try to get justice for these women. Um, she was also <clears throat> very active in voting rights and trying to make sure people could pass the literacy test and getting to the polls to vote. She was a strong advocate for women and for young people. She truly believed that young people were the future and were who were going to make those changes that were so needed. And so she helped found the youth chapter of the NAACP here in Montgomery. And so she was involved for years before her arrest, and many people, you know, like I said, don't know that. She and was so, also working for a lawyer at the time, or was she involved with somehow or another with the lawyer that was Yeah, she heavily volunteered a, with the office of Fred Gray, um, who was a black lawyer here in town. And she, because she had the secretarial experience, she volunteered in his office, you know, filing and writing letters and those kind of things. So, yeah, she had that experience as well, and she worked very closely with Edie Nixon, who was president of the local and state chapter of the NAACP at the time as well. So she had these connections, you know, really all over the state. And Rosa Parks was out looking for this opportunity to be able to take this, this thing no. to court. Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I said that with tongue-in-cheek because... Um, that is one of those misconceptions. We do have people who come through here who are adamant that she was planted on the bus. She herself said she was not. Um, I have directly spoken to Fred Gray and others who were there and involved, and they all said... No, she was not planted, that she had gone to Highlander Folk School for this desegregation training the summer before, um, specifically with school desegregation. So she had learned like these techniques of how to peacefully protest and how to react if you find yourself in these situations. So she did have that knowledge and she had those skills. And there were people like Edie Nixon and Joanne Robinson who had been trying to organize a boycott of the city buses for a few years before she was arrested. So, you know, here we say it was kind of this perfect storm of events that led to what ended up happening, her refusing to give up her seat. And she herself said also that she was remembering the murder of Emmett Till that had happened in August before her arrest. And she could picture his mother in anguish, crying, you know, in her grief over his coffin. And that really motivated her to not get up to, you know, stand up by sitting down for, you know, years and years of abuse. And from what I understand, she also was not the first person that had a case that they were thinking about bringing. Uh, I, I, let me see if I can phrase this correctly. From what I understand, Rosa Parks, when she was arrested and everything that happened in that event, she was not even thinking really about the court case that was coming about because there were already two other women that, w that had cases that were somewhat before 
the court, and Rosa was asked, you are an upstanding citizen, you have no uh, background problems here, and you are the perfect candidate. And she was kind of at the point of, well, I don't know that I really want this. Is, is, is that information? Um, you are mostly right. Um, okay. There was 15-year-old Claudette Colvin who was arrested in March before Rosa Parks was arrested. Um, Edie Nixon and Joanne Robinson had tried to organize a boycott around her. Um, many people in the black community felt she was too young to kind of shoulder this burden of this boycott they were trying to organize. And, you know, it was, she was known to have kind of a smart mouth, and so people didn't like that. And then shortly after that, it was discovered that she was pregnant. So that pretty much dashed any hopes of building a boycott around her. And then 18-year-old Mary Louise Smith was arrested in October. Um, again, Edie Nixon and Joanne Robinson tried to organize a boycott, and again, they were unsuccessful. Many of those same people still felt that she was too young at 18. <clears throat> she also came from the poorer side of Montgomery, and her father was rumored to be a drunk, and so they didn't feel that she would be an upstanding enough person, really, to, to lead this movement either. And so, like you said, though, when Rosa Parks was arrested, they felt that finally they may have kind of this perfect candidate who could be this test case because she was married. She was 42 years old. She had a stable job as a seamstress at a department store down the street. She was involved in her church very deeply um, and in the NAACP chapter. And so they felt that if the opposition tried to attack her character or find something, that they would not be as easy, or it wouldn't be as easy to do as it would be with the other younger women that had come before her. Right. Okay. And, and did, was she kind of reluctant to she use was herself? She initially, and her, um, her husband and her mother, her mother lived with them. They also did not want her to, to move forward when Edie Nixon and Joan Robinson and Fred Gray came to her and asked her. Um, but she thought about it a little and realized that, you know, it's time that, that we do attack the bus laws. And Fred Gray knew, though, that her case would get tied up in the local courts because it was specifically, or she was charged with violating the city code because the city code said that the bus drivers had the same authority as the police. Oh, and wow. so when she was told to move and she refused, that was actually what she was charged with, defying the orders of the bus driver. So because it just attacked the, or was just challenging the city code, he then filed the Browder versus Gale case in February of 56 that included Joanne Robinson, or not Joanne Robinson, I'm sorry, uh, Claudette Colvin and Mary Louise Smith, and then also Aurelia Browder and Susie McDonald. So those four women in that Browder versus Gale case were the ones who eventually did end bus segregation. Wow. That's, yeah. it's, a, it's a story. Yeah. <laughs> it's a cool story. Okay, so uh, we keep talking about the incident. Let's just briefly cover the incident for people that don't know or that need a history lesson. Sure. <laughs> so Rosa so, Parks is tired. Yeah. <laughs> she is tired of giving in, not physically tired. She said that she was you know, no more tired that day than she was any other day. Um, she boarded the bus, like I said, after getting off work. Her job was right downtown, right from where we are. So she only went about two blocks on the bus before it started filling up. And it was customary at the time, if you were a black citizen, you got on at the front, put your money in the fare machine, got back off, and then boarded through the back door. And So you had to get on the bus and then get off the bus? Yes, if you were black, and then feel from the back forward. And wow. so she had done that, and then as the 
front area, the front 10 seats were reserved for whites only. And then the middle section could be either one, depending on how many white people were on the bus and how many seats were available. And so she sat in the front of that kind of neutral section. And then as the white area filled up and the bus driver noticed that there were white passengers standing, that was when he demanded that she and the other people in her row move and give up their seats. And she had actually had a run-in with that same bus driver in 1943, where, again, it was customary that you get in, put your money off, and get off. But the back of the bus was crowded, was too crowded for her to get on that night in 1943. And so she was going to make her way down the front. And he yelled at her physically, kind of shoved her off the bus, and then drove off and left her there, even though he had taken her money already. Oh, wow. it was the same bus driver, and so she vowed that night that she would not ride another bus that James Blake was driving. And she said then, you know, in 1955, she didn't realize he was the driver when she first got on. And then when he started yelling at her, he real, she realized that he was the same guy. And he was one of the more notorious bus drivers in the city for kind of abusing his power. So, so that just probably added to her yeah. resolve to yeah. not move to the back. (laughs) Right. So she was arrested, or, well, he said that, you know, if you don't give up, or get up, then I'm going to call the police and have you arrested. She said, you may do that. So he did, and she was arrested, taken down to the county jail, spent a few hours, and finally was allowed to make a phone call to her husband, who then got on the phone to Fred Gray and Edie Nixon, who contacted the police department to try to get her released. The police wouldn't really have anything to do with them because they were black. And so Fred Gray called on his friend, who was a white civil rights lawyer in Montgomery, Clifford Durr. And so Clifford Durr, Fred Gray, and Edie Nixon went down. Nixon paid the $100 to get her out on bail. And then they went to her house, and you know those, all those other people, including Joanne Robinson, were all there. And then that was when they were asking her if she would be willing to kind of be the face of this case that they were or that this boycott that they were planning of the city buses. And the reason they were attacking the buses, or the bus system, many of the people in Montgomery at the time said that that was really where they faced kind of this in-your-face discrimination, racism, on a day-to-day basis. Because if you were black, you could avoid the white water fountains or the white department stores, but everybody rode the buses together. Over 75% of the riders were black citizens. And so that was really where they faced the constant name-calling being spit on Wow. and all this stuff. So that was why they decided to attack the bus system first. And at first they weren't trying to end segregation. They just wanted to be treated with respect. So it wasn't even like it was this ridiculous claim or you know, goal that they were trying to achieve. Right. Okay, and, and just to back up a little bit, as we walk into your museum, uh, the first room that you come to is, is a room with a bunch of screens so that you can kind of get a feel for what was going on at the time. And what, what else is your video? Yeah, so um, a lot of them are personal testimonies from people who lived here. And, you know, they tell you the stories that they experienced firsthand on the buses with, you know, being thrown off, being left, being spit on and shoved and everything. And then you also get some of the background of Rosa Parks herself. And so you get more of her training at Highlander Folk School. And, you know, as she was growing up, that she really took her inspiration from her mother and her maternal grandparents who had been enslaved and they were then sharecroppers and so they all worked on the family farm as she was growing up. But they were really the ones that instilled in her this sense of 
self-worth and value and to stand up for herself and to stand up for, you know, anybody that she saw who was in need or being mistreated or treated unfairly. And so that was really what made her kind of who she was as far as seeking equality for all people. Okay. And then we come out of the, the introduction room. Yep. <laughs> and, we, and we end up in the room where you've got a bus. Yes. <laughs> and It is not the bus that she was riding, but it is an actual 1955 bus from that same fleet. Well, she boarded at Montgomery and Commerce, and then she was arrested just before Montgomery and Lee. Okay. So like I said, she hadn't gone very far, just a couple of blocks. Okay, then we come on into the, into the next room here. Yeah, in this room, the next room after that bus reenactment of her arrest, then you come into the room that we call the negotiation room, where you really get more information on the beginning of the boycott and how the Montgomery Improvement Association was formed to lead the boycott that was coming. It was, a, it was planned for December 5th because that was the day she had to go to court. She was found guilty of violating the city code, and she was fined $10 plus $4 in court costs. And then that night there was a mass meeting held where over 5,000 of Montgomery's black citizens came, and the question was put to them, do you want the boycott to be this one-day thing like they were originally planning, or do you want to continue? And unanimously they said, no, let's keep going until we start getting better treatment. Now let's, a, let's back up to okay. a, a fact right. that you made before. 75% of the users yes. of the bus system were blacks. Yes. So a boycott is 75% of their business yeah. being nailed by this boycott. Yeah, and that day, like I said, December 5th, it was an overwhelming success. Over 97% of that 75% stayed off the buses. So there were a few black citizens that rode, but... There were very, very few. Um, the bus company ended up losing about $3,000 every day in those early days of the boycott, and they still were not willing to negotiate. Um, the mayor of Montgomery at the time, W.A. Gill, and the white commissioners were afraid, and he was quoted as saying that it would change our very fabric or the fabric of our lives if we are to give in and negotiate with the Montgomery Improvement Association who had then, by that point, elected Dr. King as president. And Dr. King was new, really, to civil rights at the time. He was 24 when he moved to Montgomery. He was 26 when the boycott ended. So he was very young. He hadn't really gotten the reputation or the, the knowledge, really, of civil disobedience and these mass protests that we now know him to have had. Um, he, he did have this understanding of Gandhi and Gandhian principles that he had followed. See, now I'm I'm gonna show my ignorance. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's pretty easy for me to do. I, I grew up in the '60s, mm-hmm. and I remember seeing the protests and the riots and all of that kind of stuff. And I remember a lot of people saying that Martin Luther King, everywhere he went, he caused problems, he caused riots, he caused problem, uh, you know, uh, disturbances. But in the last five years or so, I have read a couple of books that are just Martin Luther King's speeches. And I've come to the conclusion that Martin Luther King was actually very much a pacifist. He, de- he, he abhorred violence in any form. And when people would come to him saying, we need to do a violent overthrow, 
he was the first one to say, no, we need to do this peacefully. We can't have them looking at us as violent and, and trying to overthrow. They need to look at us as men that are willing to make force changes to happen through peaceful means. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I I ended up gaining a lot of respect for Martin Luther King that I didn't have before, but that was more my product of the 60s and the people around me, I think's interpretation of what Martin Luther King was doing. And if anybody has that view, I strongly encourage you to get a couple of books that have his speeches written out because there's no violence anywhere in it. So um, Rosa Parks in... One of her books talks about this particular instance where he was speaking and this guy, you know, jumped up and not punched him in the face, really. And, you know, all the people that were there with him pretty much jumped on the guy and wanted him, you know, arrested or wanted to beat him up themselves. And King said, no, you know, I understand where he's coming from, his frustrations, let him go. And so, yeah, it's just, you know, one in many instances where he displayed his pacifism, like you said. And right. even when his house was bombed at the end of January and this crowd had gathered, and actually when we move into the next room there, we will see some of those newspaper clippings from when his house uh, was bombed and this crowd had gathered and they wanted revenge on the people they suspected had bombed his house. And he told them, no, lay down your weapons, go home. You know, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword and reminded them that the only way, like you said, that they were going to be successful was through peace and nonviolence. So, yeah, um, and, you know, we see some of the same things, like you said, that are going on today with people calling many of the the protesters. You know, Rosa Parks was called an agitator. King was called an agitator. So many of the others were called agitators. Um, but they were advocating peaceful civil disobedience. Right. And that's the civil disobedience (laughs) part is is the cool part. (laughs) Okay, so we've got a couple of different displays here. Uh, This one's got, explain this one. It's got some books. It's got a Christmas tree. It's got some shoes. And Yeah, so this display is meant to be symbolic. And if, uh, if you were here in person, there's a panel right next to it where you can touch, it's a touch screen and right. you can touch on the, the different areas and it will give further explanation. But the books, you know, symbolize the, the, how, you know, this was after Brown versus Board of Education, but the schools were still, even though they were integrated, they were, the black children were often treated unfairly or did not have the same supplies or resources that the white kids had and then you know the colored section is just symbolic of so many of the areas that were still under Jim Crow segregation for you know about another 10 years even after the boycott okay yeah and then this other on the other side you've got several videos playing along with a a big uh, diorama of of, yeah so if you're looking at different from uh from one angle, it's the mass meeting that night, December 5th, at Holt Street Baptist Church. And if you're looking at it from the other angle, it's the, um, the mayor and the city commissioners at, the, at one of the um, White Citizens Council 
Okay. I did not realize that. I was looking at it both ways and, and yeah. yeah, that's pretty cool. And then you've got different, uh, different parts of uh, explanations of different parts of what was going on yeah, as, we, as we go down underneath kind of a this very big diorama. Timeline and part of it talks about how the, or the Montgomery Improvement Association was formed and then the list of demands that they made of the bus company and the city leaders. Again, they weren't looking to end segregation. They had three demands for putting an end to the boycott. One, that they be treated fairly. Two, that they have first come, first serve seating. And three, that the bus company hire black drivers and add stops in black neighborhoods because all of the drivers were white. All the stops were in white neighborhoods or white oh, wow. areas of town, even though 75%, again, so, were black citizens. Wow, I did not so, realize yeah. that. So um, those were their three demands. Again, they weren't asking for anything way out there, but the city and the bus company refused to negotiate. So ne- negotiations pretty much broke down, and then these, act- these threats of violence and acts of violence against the boycotters continued happening, and that's when King's House was bombed. Okay, and, we, and you were talking $3,000 a day is what it was costing the bus yes. company. But we're talking $1,965. $1,955. dollars yes. which yes. equates to what About $137. Or no, I'm sorry, $27,000. The $137 was her uh, fine for... Okay, But right. it's $27,000 a day okay. in today's is, money. Is yeah. what they were losing. A little more than $27,000. So, so it, yeah. it makes a big difference, yeah. you know, when you translate that. Because people yeah. thinking, oh, they're only losing $3,000 well, a day. Well, I don't want to lose $3,000 Well, I don't either, but, you know, I mean, a big city bus, yeah. you know, we'll wait them out to situation. Yeah. But that wasn't, you know, they were yeah. losing $100,000 a week. Yeah. So... Yeah, and then that brings us to Dr. King here in his kitchen. And you can see the picture of Gandhi. And this is based on what his kitchen actually looked like um, when he lived here in Montgomery. He was pastor at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. That was his first and only. It wasn't this small. That well, was his. exactly. But <laughs> that was his first and only head pastorship position was at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church here. And so he had been here for about a year when the boycott started. And this was after a particularly nasty phone call that told him he had three days to get out of town or his house was going to be blown up and his brains were going to be blown out. And he was used to getting threats, and his wife was used to getting those threatening phone calls. But this one just really struck him. He had his wife and his baby daughter that he was also concerned about. And so he sat in his kitchen, and he prayed, and he asked God for guidance. And he truly believed that God spoke to him that night and told him to keep standing up for truth and justice and righteousness. And if he did that, that God would see him through. So he really recommitted himself to the boycott that night and vowed that he would see it through to the end, whatever that end may be. Okay. So then, yeah, we move into this next area, and this is where I was talking about him standing on the porch to calm this crowd down who had gathered after his house was bombed. His wife and baby daughter and a family friend were at the house Luckily, Mrs. King heard a noise on the porch and grabbed the baby, and they all ran to the back when the dynamite exploded. So nobody was injured, but... And did it blow up his, I mean, his house? It it damaged the front of it pretty badly, yeah. Wow. And so then um, this next little area, we briefly talk about Browder versus Gale, which we already talked about that and how that was filed on behalf of the four other women who had either been arrested or you know, been manhandled, forcibly removed from the city buses um, to challenge the... It w- well, it was filed in the Middle District Court, 
challenging the state statutes on segregation on the buses first, and then eventually it went to the United States Supreme Court. But we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that was at the beginning of February 1956 when Browder v. Gale was filed. And then by the end-ish of February 56, the city leaders were still looking for some legal way to put an end to the boycott. So they found this statute from 1921 that said you couldn't protest or boycott unless you had just cause. And they didn't believe these boycotters had a good enough reason to be doing what they were doing. Okay. So they issued these 89 arrest warrants, and they started arresting many of these boycott leaders because they felt that if they did that, that would cast a bad light on these boycott leaders as being just a bunch of criminals. And so then when many of the other ones heard what was happening, they got dressed up in their nice Sunday clothes and went and turned themselves in. And so it was a little chaotic at the courthouse that day with all these people coming in, being arrested, fingerprinted, having their mugshots taken. And then after they were all 89 processed, they went to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and had that picture there taken. And that's all 89 of them, or is there... Um, that's not all 89. There are a few that are not in there, but it's a large percentage of them. And we have King in the front. And they're all very, they're all very nicely dressed. Yes. They're, all, they're all dressed in their Sunday best. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Rosa Parks was a part of that arrest as well. So the famous pictures of her being fingerprinted and with her 7053 arrest number, that was actually from this arrest, not her first one. Okay. The, the, so the picture that you see all yeah, the time of yeah. her. Okay. They were from this one. And this was another major turning point because up until that point, people outside of the South really didn't know how bad it was for black citizens here. And so people started sending money down to help out, started coming down to help drive people around to really help out in any way they could. So it ended up strengthening the boycott instead of putting an end to it like the mayor and the other city commissioners had hoped that it would. Okay, and let's talk about this boycott because this wasn't, uh, you've got 75% of the of the black population that is riding the bus and all of a sudden they're not riding the bus anymore. Right. How are they getting to work? How are, they, how are they negotiating this boycott because this couldn't have been easy for them right. where they didn't have transportation, they all had jobs or they had to have jobs. I mean, yeah. this was before the days of of unemployment or, or, or working, any, at home. <laughs> working at home or any of that kind of <laughs> right. stuff. They had to get to work in yeah. order to do this or else they were going to lose their jobs. And now they decided they're not riding the bus. So are they all riding bicycles and walking? or Initially, most of them were walking. You know, there were some citizens who had cars who would give rides to neighbors or friends. A lot of them did walk. A lot of them did ride bicycles. But that actually brings me to my next point, the... Um, many of the area black churches and the black churches were a very important part of the movement itself. They were meeting places. The church leaders were boycott leaders. But the, the black churches and the Montgomery Improvement Association knew they were going to have to do something if they were going to help sustain this boycott because, you know, kind of by the end of January, people were getting tired of working frank or walking and we're starting to grumble that, you know, is this worth it? It would be so much easier if we just got back on the buses. We'll just put up with all the crap we're getting. So they knew they were going to have to do something if they were going to succeed. So they Now, bought. the churches were involved in this? Yes. This yes. must have been before 501c3 yeah. <laughs> yes. when, when churches <laughs> yeah. were not allowed to take right. a political stance yes. Yes. and <laughs> teach from the pulpit that, you know, maybe a, maybe a civil disobedience. Yes. I, I, 
You can tell there's a little bit of sarcasm <laughs> here because I, I really think that the churches are failing us yeah. now because the churches are not standing up and taking a lead and telling their congregations what they need to do in order to bring us through the times that we're in right now. Yeah, I uh, you know, and, and the thing is, is they've all given up their ability to be able to speak and to talk to their congregation because they want that tax uh, uh, donation or tax-exempt status, and they're not willing to, to violate that or to take that away for the dollar. Yeah. And You're now right. I just probably got myself in lots of trouble, but here we go. I was going to say, it, I gave a wrong. warning. I gave a warning at the beginning that this one here is going to be a sensitive one for me. <laughs> so yes, the black churches did. They were very involved. And so they bought a fleet of station wagons like this one that we have here in the museum. Really? And they orchestrated this very elaborate carpooling system. Um, it was ran pretty much like the bus route, so if you needed a ride, you could go to these different strategically placed pickup spots and get a ride to work or to church or to do your shopping, wherever you needed to go, to, the kids could get to school. Wow. Yeah. So that was how they were able to sustain it for so long, was by instituting this carpooling system. And then private citizens who you know, volunteered to pick up people and drive them around as well. So how many of the churches bought these cars? There were, a fl the official fleet was 19 okay. of the, the church-specific cars. And then, like I said, there were countless other just private citizens who wow. gave rides and everything. And, and actually, we're looking at, I think this is a 56 yes. a Chevy four-door wagon. <laughs> a beautiful car, Bel Air. Yep. <laughs> uh, I, I, I kind of like the wagons myself, and so this one here I, I, I'm impressed with. And, and I remember this from the last time I visited because okay. I was thinking, yeah, I want to see that car again. Yep, it is a nice one, that's but, for sure. Oh, very nice. And so they had a fleet of 19 of these, and then did they hire a driver to drive, or they was would, that a volunteer thing, a volunteer or was it the pastor? Position. Uh, usually they were people who were involved in the churches who would volunteer to drive the cars. Um, but it wasn't like it was this particular guy's car. They would have multiple drivers. Um, but they could not take any money because the city would not allow them to operate as taxis because they wouldn't issue them taxi licenses or insure them as taxis. They wouldn't insure the cars, period. Finally, Dr. King was able to convince a friend in Atlanta to you know, reach out to his contacts internationally and Lloyd's of London was finally the one who actually insured the cars. Wow. And that was partially because they were trying to make reparations for their part in the transatlantic slave trade. Okay. So, you know, we have all of these connections. But, yeah, so during this time also, because the bus company was losing $3,000 every day, and that was a major hit to the city's finances, they had instituted this get-tough policy where they really stepped up surveillance. And so we have this big picture here. And you can see the, the three motorcycle police watching the, the E.L. Posey parking lot, which was one of the major pickup spots of the carpooling system. And they would keep very detailed surveillance records of who was driving the car, which church was associated with the car, who was being dropped off and picked up. And if they saw any money exchange hands, then they could find the driver or the church, or they could arrest the driver as well. So they, like I said, couldn't take any money or had to be sneaky about it. Well, who and who financed the cars? Was that well, done from people outside of the town, or was offerings at 
the ma at the weekly mass meetings, also on or at church on Sundays, they would take up special collection for any of the maintenance to buy gas. And then one of the other major funders we'll get to in just a second. But then there were like private donations too, just okay. ordinary citizens who would send money. And by that point, really, it had they had started coming in from all over the country and some international support too, starting to send money to to really help sustain the boycott. Wow, that is so cool. And the thing that the, the thing that I find so cool is that the community gathered together and they all agreed to do this. I mean, it's not like one or two people deciding yep. they're not going to go to Walmart because they don't like where Walmart purchases right. their stuff. That's pretty ineffective when you've got 10,000 others going. But in order to make the change, the community came together and made the change. And they lived through the hardship because this couldn't have been easy for yep. any of them. You know, and, and they, it went on for what, a year? A little over a year, yeah. A little over a year. They stuck with it for a year. And then the changes were forced to come yeah. in. That is just, to me, that's the story. Yeah. So, you know, all this during this time and everything, that Browder versus Gale case is going through the court system. The Middle District Court ruled that it was unconstitutional to segregate on the city buses. Of course, the mayor and the white city councilors were not happy about that, so they immediately appealed. Finally, it went to the Alabama Supreme Court. Um, they ruled in opposition to the district court. And so then Fred Gray and um, Charles Langford and Clifford Durr appealed that decision. And finally, it went to the Supreme Court. And in November of 56, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional. They upheld the original ruling, and that officially, legally ended it, ended the boycott. But it didn't officially end it. I just said that backwards. But Dr. King and the other heads of the MIA wanted to wait until those documents were officially in hand in Montgomery before they told the people to get back on the buses. So finally in December... Well, and of course, once, yeah. once, once this all went through the court case and all yeah. that, there wasn't any more animosity and just jumping back on the of buses course. was cool. Yeah, of yeah. course. That's the way it works. <laughs> Segregation is over and done with. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick uh, uh, sponsor break here, and then we'll be right back. So we have this little bitty picture of here. I wish we had a bigger one, but Georgia Gilmore was... The one that I was talking about was a major funder. Um, unfortunately, she has largely been overlooked. Really, more people are starting to hear about her now, lately. I've but, never heard of her. Yeah. She was a cook um, at one of the hotels here, and in a, one of the you know, bogus charges against Dr. King, um, she testified on his behalf about the treatment on the city buses, and she lost her job. So he encouraged her to start a restaurant in her house and he helped her get her kitchen up to code and everything and so she started feeding king and other boycott leaders and the everyday people of the boycott the drivers of the cars and then she also <clears throat> organized this group of black women who would bake cookies and pies and cakes and sell those out of the area black businesses and then all that money they would donate to the the carpooling system at those mass meetings, and when anybody asked her where the money came from, she would say, oh, nowhere, because she didn't want them to trace it back, obviously. Right. And so this collective of women became known as the Club from Nowhere. Like I said, they were <laughs> a major funder of the carpooling system. Okay, and, and, and I was just reading here, it says that they had 350 cars that they used. Now, they bought uh, the 19 new cars, yep. but they had 350 cars in there 
carpooling right. system. Like I said, the private citizens that would Yeah, I didn't realize yeah. that it was that big. Yeah. That's that's a lot of cars. That's a it lot is, of drivers yeah. and people that are that are putting themselves out at their own expense. I mean, maybe yeah. a little bit coming in here and there to make this thing work. Yeah, and um, we have an image over here of Jeannie Gratz, and she and her husband, well, he was a pastor. He was a white pastor at an all-black church, Trinity Lutheran Church here in Montgomery. And they were, you know, strong advocates for equality, desegregation, and they were friends and neighbors of, well, they were neighbors of Rosa Parks and then became very good friends with Rosa Parks, and they were very involved in the boycott itself. He, Reverend Gratz was the only white, member, white board member of the MIA, and so she and Reverend Gratz would drive people around. They became part of this carpooling system. She was a member of the Women's Political Council as well, and the little graphic here says, you know, that their house was bombed twice because of their involvement, and they were pretty much shunned by Montgomery White society. Right. So, wow. Yeah. This is just, uh, it's so big, and, <laughs> yeah. yet, and yet I don't think people realize how big it was, how involved it was, how long it was, yeah. and it's just such a cool part of history. I agree. And, and <laughs> this museum is an awesome museum. Well, thank you. We try. So, okay. So, yeah, finally... Toward the end of uh, December 56, those court documents did arrive, and so King and the other heads of the MIA officially declared an end to the boycott. And what's MIA stand for? <clears throat> Montgomery Improvement Association. Okay, okay. So December 21st, 1956, 382 days after it started, the boycott officially ended when people got back on the buses for the first time in 13 months. And so now everybody could get on at the front and go sit wherever, so you didn't have to get off and go to the back anymore. But, you know, there were still roughly about a year, for about a year after, there were still, you know, buses being shot at, people being manhandled, name-called, shoved. Um, eventually, it did get better, but it didn't just go away, obviously. Uh, well, <laughs> and it wouldn't. I'm, yeah. I'm sure that the feelings were very yeah. divided and, and very uh, uh, inflamed, yeah. I mean, for probably years yeah. afterwards. And, and what happened to the, the bus driver? Well, um, well, he kept driving the bus. It, the, uh, the ruling did strip the, well, after the ruling, that one didn't particularly deal with it, but it did strip the, the police authority from the bus drivers. So they didn't have those capabilities that they had before. So that helped with some of the issues, um, that they couldn't legally force these people to do anything. But um, he retired from driving the buses. He was adamant till his dying day that he was just doing his job that he didn't know why all this stuff happened. Pretty huh. much what you would expect. <laughs> right. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah, very much so. But yeah, okay, I didn't realize that he, that he went on to retire yeah. and all that as a bus driver. Yep. Rosa probably still never really liked yeah, him and no. didn't want to ride on his <laughs> no, bus. No, no, no. <laughs> so then that day, December 21st, those became known as the victory rides when... King and many other boycott leaders rode around that whole day on the buses just talking to people, shaking hands, letting them know that they appreciated the sacrifices like you were saying earlier. They knew that without this community of people coming together to sacrifice for over a year that they wouldn't have been successful. But because they did, and they did it peacefully, cohesively, with strong leadership, and they were able to bring about these social and legal changes that's why the boycott is known as the beginning of the modern civil rights movement. 
Okay. And then they moved on from there to different places. Uh, I mean, Martin Luther King was yeah. all over the place yeah, um, uh, speaking and stuff. Was he involved in other uh, boycotts or protests? Or He was. He and Reverend Abernathy, who was sitting next to him, um, formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And they you know, went on to help organize. Well, and this is Glenn Smiley next to him. He, was, he had been trained in desegregation um, kind of practices and civil disobedience, and so he came down after the boycott had started, but to help King and the other leaders keep it organized and kind of on track. And so these gentlemen, and there were some others obviously involved, who went on to organize like the march from Selma to Montgomery and the march on Washington and the sit-in. So even though they may not have directly been there, the, the techniques and things that were developed and used successfully here in Montgomery went on to these other events as well. Okay. Yep. Now, unfortunately, well, fortunately, segregation on the buses ended. Unfortunately, it took about another 10 years for legal segregation to really be done away with. Um, so you can, we have this one picture over here that was after the boycott ended, but you can still see the, the segregated waiting or the bus stop to get onto the buses. There was still the the white waiting area and the colored waiting area. And the, and the water fountains yeah. segregated and, yeah. and schools like for, and all of that kind of stuff. For everything for about another 10 years after. And there were several other court decisions that ended up having to break some of that stuff up yes. too. Yes, uh, many, I don't know them off the top of my head, like who versus I was going to say who, Brown <laughs> versus the yeah, board, well, school. Brown versus Board of Education was in 54. Oh, was it? So that okay. was right before all the boycott. Okay. And then there were countless others after that. Many of them that Fred Gray who was Rosa Parks' lawyer and King's lawyer, went on to litigate. So he became known really as this impressive, and he is still alive practicing in Tuskegee, Alabama, but this great civil rights lawyer. He's still practicing? Yep. Like today? Yep. How old is this guy? I mean, He's, he had to have been 40 or... No, he was, he was young then. He was, was like he? 25, in, right around there. In 19... In, okay. In 50, in okay, yeah, so he's he going to be—he's got to be pushing eighty. Yeah, anyway. he's in his eighties. Yeah. Wow, and he's still—he's still doing it. Yep, he's still doing it. That is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the yep. story—it'd be interesting <laughs> to be able to talk to him yep. and just and just get some of his uh, his story oh, and some yeah. of what he's, he's been, been through. He's been here a few times. Has he? Speaking engagements and things like that. Yeah. So you've he's, met the man. Oh, I have. Wow. He is one of the ones that I asked directly. Was she planted on the bus? And he said no. So. Well, I'm, I'm going to believe those people who were there. And Rosa said yep. in, in her biography yep. or whatever, she said that she she was not looking for that position. Right. Yeah. But it just kind of befell her. Yep, exactly. So. And then we have this pamphlet. That yeah. If we have little kids, we don't really talk about it. But, you know, with older kids and adults, then we'll hit on it. But it's for the from the Georgia Commission on Education in 1957. And Rosa Parks... Before and after her arrest had gone to training at Highlander Folk School and Dr. King had gone there, many other civil rights leaders went there for training on desegregation. And this was all happening during the Cold War, during the Red Scare. So many of the communist newspapers were publishing these stories about the civil rights movement in the United States to cast the U.S. in a bad light, Okay, obviously. And... The opposition to desegregation latched onto that and said, well, obviously then these are 
communists because the communist people are writing about them and championing their cause, so they have to be communists too, and they're agitators. And so it was just propaganda rhetoric that was, you know, spewed at them um, to try to make the everyday ordinary white citizens maintain segregation. Thank you for that. <laughs> because I had I, I had always heard, I mean, when they were talking about bringing in the Martin Luther King Day and all those yes. things, there was always Martin Luther King was a communist yep. and Martin Luther King was, was a communist sympathizer yep. and, and all of those kind of things, which again, if you read his personal speeches and his works, you find out that he, there's something with the communist uh, arrangement that he's intrigued with but he also despises it at the same time. And I don't think there's anything wrong with looking at, at other yeah. systems to see just what they have to offer, what they don't have to offer, but you don't have to be an advocate because you're looking at it. Right. Or, and, and, you know, like you said, if, if the communists are, are putting out stuff in their paper, then I can see how people would jump to that conclusion, but we also have people all over in the government and, and other places that are pushing propaganda on mm-hmm. us all the time absolutely and yeah so, so yeah I mean, it, it was it was kind of an eye-opener for yeah. me and I'm, I'm glad you addressed that so we have come a long way but a lot of things are still the same right <laughs> so yeah you were talking about the other events that kind of grew out of the boycott and we have these panels here we don't really go into a whole lot of detail because our focus is really on Rosa Parks and the bus boycott but you know we mentioned how the the leaders who really came up like King and Abernathy went on to all of these other civil rights you know, events and protests and how those strategies went on to varying degrees of success and effect. And we have the, the lunch counter sit-ins here and the Freedom Rides. This was when their bomb was um, firebombed in Anniston, Alabama, which is kind of just north of Birmingham. And then the Birmingham protests where you know, there are all the famous videos and photos of the dogs being sicked on people and hosed down with the fire hoses. Now, where was, where was this bus bombing? This one was in Anniston, Alabama, which is kind of just northeast of Birmingham. Okay. And then... And were there, was, were there people on the bus when it was bombed, or...? They had just gotten off... Well, when the um, dynamite was, official, or was first thrown at it, they were able to get off before it, you know, really wow. blew up. And then... A separate Freedom Rides came here, and there's actually a Freedom Rides Museum about a block and a half around the corner from us from when they arrived here. This was a separate bus, obviously, but um, they were dragged off and beaten here, and then they um, took refuge in First Baptist Church, which is on Ripley Street, until the National Guard came in and was able to get them back on a bus and send them on their way. Wow. There's just so much of this that, I mean, I was a kid. I was born in 61, so I was, I was four years old. Yep. And there's just so much of this story that I, that I don't know, even though, like I've said, it's, it's in very important history. Yeah. And, well, and I think if more people really you know, dove in and started reading more of it and learning more of the history, a lot of the problems that we're facing today wouldn't be happening. I, I think that's probably yeah. true. I, the... the We've been traveling, and we've, we've gone through Tennessee, Kentucky, Florida, Georgia, uh, South Carolina, and everywhere I go, we're seeing 
no racial problems. I mean, the TV and the news is putting this stuff out that it's there day in, day out. Nobody can stand each other. And yet everywhere we go, we see integrated family. We see integrated friendships. We see people working side by side. And there's not the animosity that, that we're being shown. But if a change needs to be made, it, it seems like this is the way to do it. I mean, no matter what that change is, whether whether you're gun rights or, or whatever, you know, I mean, across the board, uh, Thoreau wrote his book, Civil Disobedience, and he's right on point. Yeah. So, okay, sorry, I, I keep talking. <laughs> it's quite all right. Um, do you want to keep going through these? Yeah, let's, okay. let's do, because um, it's history I don't know. Well, this one is the Voting Rights March. <clears throat> and where was and, that? Um, this one was in... It started in Selma, but there were these marches that popped up kind of all over, really, the South. Okay. Uh, and then these were three young men who worked for the um, Congress on Racial Equality. And they were in Mississippi registering black citizens to vote in 63, if I am not mistaken. It might have been 64. And they, they were known to be, or what they were doing. It was known what they were doing. And... Um, he was a black man. These two were Jewish. And so the police arrested them. The sheriff arrested them. And when he realized he couldn't hold them, he drove them out, let them go, and then called his buddies who were in the Klan and said, hey, I just had these three agitators. Um, I let them out here, and the Klan, they disappeared, and their bodies were found in their car some months later when they had been, or where they had been executed by the Klan. Wow. And then this is the Selma Montgomery March. When they... In 65. Okay. And they were, this was the, officially the third march. The first one was what ended in Bloody Sunday where John Lewis was beaten in the initial attempt to cross and march to Montgomery. And, oh, I'm sorry. And then they, King came, he wasn't at the first one. He came down for the second one. And they marched across the bridge, knelt, and then went back. And that rubbed a lot of people in the black community the wrong way because they thought they were going to march the whole way. And so finally, on the third one, they did march from Selma to Montgomery um, in support of voting rights. And how far was Selma from Montgomery? It's about 54 miles. That's a long walk. It is. And Rosa Parks was uh, did a bunch of that, tra- uh, that she, walk, if I remember she right. She joined them when they got to the city of St. Jude, which is kind of, it's in Montgomery, but it's kind of the south part of Montgomery. And so she marched with them the kind of last leg Okay. Of the uh, of the march to the Capitol here in Montgomery, and then this man is James Meredith, and he was also a follower of Gandhi, and he had been to um, South Africa and you know seen techniques that had happened there. Um, he had been to India to kind of follow in Gandhi's footsteps, and he came back and he was the first black student at the University of Mississippi, and so he was holding kind of this one-man protest march to integrate the University of Mississippi. And this picture was taken just after he was shot in the back um, oh, because wow. of that. He did survive and went on to integrate the university, and there's a statue of him still there. And then the last panel <clears throat> is the uh, sanitation workers' march in Memphis and then King on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel shortly before he was assassinated. Okay. 
Wow. And then we have that last little video that kind of talks more about Rosa Parks after the boycott. Um, in 57, she and her mother and her husband moved to Detroit. They had both lost their jobs during the boycott, couldn't find work after. They were still constantly being threatened and harassed. And her brother had already moved to Detroit, so they left and went up there with him. She briefly went to Virginia to work and then came back to Detroit, where she lived the rest of her life. She passed away on October 24, 2005, at the age of 92. And even after she moved to Detroit, she was still very active in advocacy for women, for young people. She and her friend, Elaine Steele, formed the Rosa and Raymond Parks Institute for Self-Development um, to educate and empower young people. She, as part of Congressman John Conyers, or when she went to work for him, they were very involved in workers' rights and unionizing workers in the auto industry okay. to get better wages and treatment there. She you know, continued advocating for voting rights. So she was involved in a lot of stuff. She went to protest against apartheid in South Africa. So she had a long life of oh, activism yeah. and working towards equality for all people. And never hurt anybody. Right. <laughs> <laughs> never hurt or, anybody. or destroyed anything. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so cool. Yeah, and she said, you know, that she understood where that the feelings of wanting to retaliate came from and that, you know, she believed in self-defense if somebody came right. at you, but to not just go out and destroy, you know, cause problems for the sake of doing it, that, you know, you're going to get more done if you can have a conversation with somebody. Right, exactly. So is there more to this museum or is this the end? We have a few, like, art and exhibits in the halls. We okay. have a temporary gallery that we don't have anything in right now because we're between exhibits. But then we do have our children's wing exhibit that has our Cleveland Avenue time machine. That's that, what I'm, I, yeah, I was... <laughs> that, that one doesn't cover any of the modern civil rights, but it gives you more context for how the Jim Crow laws really got their start and kind of grew in the South. And it's a little bus ride. Yep. And the talks it's a, about... It's a simulator, so you move and shake a little bit. Right. And, like I said, it takes you back to the 1800s, starts really kind of with Reconstruction, and then brings you forward, and you get a little bit of the stories of Harriet Tubman, Henry Box Brown, Dred Scott, Homer Plessy, and right. how they were challenging, even though it wasn't really called segregation for many of those, how they were challenging the treatment of black citizens. And that's mostly set up for children. It I found it intriguing. Say, we have a lot of adults who enjoy it as well, so it's not specifically for kids, but... This wing opened first. It opened on the 45th anniversary of Mrs. Park's arrest on December 1st, 2000. Okay. And so as kids started coming through and then the people who were in charge at the time realized that they didn't have a lot of the context of how we got to this point where we needed events okay. like the boycott. And so they added that wing on to kind of fill in some of those gaps. Cool. Well, I so appreciate you talking with you us are today. More than this is this has been something that I have really been looking forward to. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I've been talking about it for years, and this trip's kind of based around stopping in Montgomery and coming back through here. Well, and uh, I'm so glad that you took the time uh, to talk with us and to shed light on this very important part of history. Absolutely, it was an so, honor. Thank you. I appreciate your time, Donna. And the way I finish these things out is I say the world is full of wonder.
People need to get out and explore. There's so much to see, so much to do. And everybody have a wonder-filled day. Haul the roll and go. Where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? Out along the topsail yard, that's where you're bound to go, Johnny. Way, hey, hey, all the rolling go. It's out along the topsail yard, take the topsail. I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? Oh, where am I to go, Johnny? Where am I to go, Johnny? Way, hey, hey, all the rolling go. Young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? Fits out along the royal yard, that's where you're bound to go, Johnny. Way, hey, hey, all the rolling go. It's out along the royal yard, the royal fort is stowed. I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? Oh, where am I to go, me Johnny? Where am I to go? Yeah.